Jericho Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's Friday, so let's turn it over to Duff McKagan and the patented joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, it's Duff McKagan. I have a, a special guest today, uh, producer Martin Favier. I'm here in Seattle. Uh, Martin's going to tell the joke of the week today. Martin? Okay. This young lady, uh, she gets into an elevator, and she looks over, and there's James Bond. And she says to him, are you James Bond? And he goes, yes, I am. And uh, Sean Connery's James Bond. Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. And he's fiddling with his watch. And she says, uh, is that one of those fancy gadget watches that you get from Q? And he goes, yes, miss, it is. And she says, well, what does it do? He goes, well, miss, actually, it's an x-ray watch. So she gets kind of flustered and a little flirty. And she says to him, so are you telling me with that watch, you can see what color panties I'm wearing? He goes, indeed I can, miss. She says, go on then. Go on then, tell me, what color panties am I wearing? So he fiddles with his watch, and he looks up at her, and he says, well, miss, I have to tell you, you're not wearing any panties at all. And she says, no, 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 your watch is wrong, because I'm wearing blue panties. And he says, well, ha-ha, it must be five minutes fast. Dirty joke, but not yet. <laughs> Ridiculous uh, Sean Connery impression. Very funny, thanks to Duff. And the special guest joke teller, uh, you heard what Duff said. The producer, Martin Favier. Uh, wow, that was a good one. Maybe we might have to bring uh, the, the Martin Favier joke of the week of the future. But thanks to everyone who's been checking out the Winnipeggers every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. Last week's Idiot Olympics Part 2 was our highest rated show ever, and we thank you for that. Super successful. This week, it's all about offensive ads that we found from the 60s, 70s, 1800s, 1900s, early on. And wait till you see these things. Oh, not uh, PC at all. Cocaine toothache drops. Stevie Wonder playing Atari. Uh, women being insulted. Sexist ads. Just ridiculous all across the board. Uh, check out the new episode now on the Facebook page and YouTube channel. I can't believe these, these ads are even allowed to exist. Thankfully, we have come through it on the other side. And uh, we're going to show you that on the Winnipeggers. And today, we're going to show you all about Jim Crockett, the legendary promoter of Jim Crockett Promotions, who recently passed away, the mastermind uh, behind the NWA in the 80s. we got Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, and of course, AEW announcer Tony Schiavone, returning to uh, Talk is Jericho to pay tribute to the legendary promoter. We're sharing the history of Jim Crockett Promotions, how it became known as the NWA, and ultimately WCW, once Jim sold the company to Turner Broadcasting in 1988, you hear stories about Ric Flair, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Sting! You'll discover why Jim Crockett Jr. buying Bill Watts' territory in the 80s was basically the beginning of the end for Crockett's company, and how Jim battled Vince McMahon and the WWF for shows, arenas, and fans. Tony and Dave even tell the story of the StarCast sabotage in full detail. Very, very famous. Tony also subscribes what Jim Crockett Jr. was like as the boss why he owes his entire wrestling career to the Crockett family, and what he was able to tell Jim just a few days before his passing. So let's get to it. The Jim Crockett cast paying tribute to the great Jim Crockett, starting now on Talk is Jericho. So this past uh, few weeks, uh, one of the probably most legendary U.S. promoters, maybe even second to Vince McMahon and, and Jim Crockett Jr. passed away. And I wanted to put together a little bit of a, a kind of a mini panel with some guys that work with them and obviously... Uh, Noah's history, Dave Meltzer, you know everybody's history, and, and Tony, you worked with, with Jim Crockett quite extensively for many, many, many years. 
just to start off, would it be safe to say that he's maybe second only to Vince McMahon as far as influential U.S. promoter, Dave? I mean, modern era. Modern era, For yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. If you're going to say from, like, say, 75 to the present, I would say so, yeah. I mean, like, uh, in time, you know, maybe Tony will end up being there, but we're only two years in. But, um, I mean, like, all time, you know, there's been Senior and there's Sam Mushnick and people like that. But from 75 on, without a doubt, I would say number two behind Vince would be Jim Crockett. Yeah. And how is it for you, Tony? I don't know. Were you close with Jim Crockett still now, then? I uh, actually, I, I'm still pretty close to David. Uh, gotcha. Which, uh, uh, David uh, had has done some shows with Conrad and I. Uh, oh, some, okay. Uh, a stage show. And uh, uh, when we were in Baltimore, we had uh, StarCast in Baltimore. Uh, he had Jimmy and David there. They also had my birthday party there. So Jimmy and David came to that and I got to see awesome. Jimmy and for the first time. And well, unfortunately, two days before he died, David called me and said, Jimmy wants to talk to you. So he put me on, on the speakerphone and I talked to Jimmy and, and told him how much his family meant to me and, uh, how much, uh, he meant to my career. I, and I, and I said this to him and I, and it's honestly, I, I said, I would be nothing without you. Because you're the one that gave me my shot, gave me my chance. And so everything that I've done, every success that I've had is really because of, of your confidence in me. I know there's a lot of other people that, you know, were on my side, like Flair and Dusty wanted me to, to do well. But Jimmy Crockett made the decision to let me work for them and thus made the decision to put me on TBS. And that's how it all kind of started for me. Let's talk a little bit, kind of just a little bit of the history, because you mentioned the Crockett family and and... So Jim Crockett, for those who don't know, is basically the, the main promoter of the NWA. But his father was a promoter, too. Is that correct, Dave? That's yeah, his father was a promoter of, like, everything that came through the Carolinas, pretty much. Like, I think he started, like, restaurant and theater and things like that. And then he made a relationship with Jack Curley, who was the New York promoter. So he's like the Vince of that era who was the booker of Jim Londos, who was like the Hulk Hogan of that era. And he was looking to basically create his own. It was actually the beginning of what we would call regional territorial wrestling. He, because he had Londos, it's like, I've got Jim Londos and I want to control where Jim Londos goes. So I'm going to set up my own group of promoters all over the country to book Jim Londos in. And in the Carolinas, Jim Crockett Sr., who was at the time 25 years old, Mm. but I guess he was successful at other things. And he said, like, let's do this. And he started promoting wrestling and the wrestling got bigger and bigger and bigger as the years went on to where, you know, Jim Sr. was running a territory that was probably, you know, running three shows a night. Because, I mean, the one thing with the, with the Carolinas territory is that it didn't have the major cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York or Boston, but it had a lot of good wrestling cities and, and even small towns, and they were really good with like the small town and medium town promotions, even before Jim took over. And they were a steady, you know, a steady, good territory. They weren't like nobody said that Jim Sr.'s territory was number two in the world or nothing, but he was he was well liked and, and, and not just in the wrestling world, in the, in the baseball world, as far as um, they came in late. I guess that's a little bit later, but in right. In, in the Harlem Globetrotters or the Roller Derby or whatever, everything that went through there, Jim mm. Sr. was involved in that promotion. So it's kind of similar in a lot, a lot of ways to, to Vince Sr. and Vince Jr. then. I mean, the similarities in the sense of the sun takes over. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it's different because, I mean, and Tony, you might know the history better than me on this, but my impression was when Jim Jr. was growing up, it wasn't like, like Vince Jr., 
from from the day he saw pro wrestling, wanted to run pro wrestling. And and my impression was Jim Jr. wasn't necessarily like that, but things happened and his father died and he's 29, 30 years old, you know, and they decide that he's going to be the guy. Some of it was because Francis, who's the oldest, was a woman. And in those days, I think the idea of a woman running Mm -hmm. a wrestling territory was kind of whatever, even though Francis ended up being a very successful baseball executive. So Jim gets the territory and I guess through aggressiveness and, and hiring of George Scott and an eye for younger talent, these, you know, medium market cities become like Greensboro and Charlotte and Richmond become like real wrestling hotbeds. And, and, you know, they Ric Flair and Steamboat and these guys, the best young wrestlers in the business at the time, um, long mixing with veterans, they end up having just a really hot territory. And, you know, you look at the old uh, clips of, the footage from even long before, even the before the eighties, when you're looking to the seventies and Tony would know, cause he went to some of these shows, the heat in the crowd was just spectacular. Some of the best that you'll ever see anywhere. Yeah. I, I grew up in that territory. That was, that was my territory. I, I went uh, religiously and I'm talking about a high school and a college years, religiously went to Greensboro. I uh, went to uh, Roanoke, went to Richmond, went to spot shows, went to spot <laughs> shows at high schools. Uh, and went to a place called the Augusta Expo, which is like an old barn right off of the interstate, an exposition hall, and went to see those shows. There's another story about about Jimmy and about promoting uh, Dave, and I'm sure you know about this. Francis Crockett was married to a guy named Johnny Ringley. Right. And Johnny was actually the guy who took over the business from Jim Sr. Hmm. Yeah. But then Johnny got into some trouble, and he and Francis divorced, or as the legend goes, he was uh, not faithful. He was running around on her. <laughs> and so out of the family, he goes and Jimmy takes over the business. So I don't know if, I don't know if Jimmy wanted the business. I- I'm sure he did, but he was not really the heir apparent. It was, uh, it was Johnny Ringley because he was married to the oldest Francis Crockett. It's a very interesting story. Right. And, and Flair has always said like, you know, I mean, what would have happened if John Ringley, you know, because, you know, it was Jim Jr.'s whatever it was, you know, his driver, whatever that, that took this thing from being the old Crockett territory to the thing where they started going to Buffalo and Toronto and, yep. you know, eventually got in the superstation. And then that's when they really took off as far as being the number two promotion in, in the country. Yeah. So what year did you get involved with, with Jim Crockett? We started working for him, Tony. I started, I, I was, I was hired by the baseball team. I was hired by mm-hmm. Francis to be their announcer in 1982. And I, um, uh, Growing up in the Mid-Atlantic region and doing exactly like what I said, you know, going to all these shows, I knew exactly when I was hired who I was working for. I knew exactly. <laughs> and I told Francis, I said, you know, if you, because minor league baseball didn't, it still doesn't pay much of anything at all. Right. And we were uh, having a family. And, and I told Francis, I said, if you guys ever need a wrestling announcer, I'm available. And, and I said that for about a year. And then in 1983, I'm thinking October of 83, Francis called me in the office. We were out doing sales, going door to door, trying to sell season tickets and fence signs and program ads. What a life. Uh, <laughs> and it, it was tough. And she, uh, she said, I need to talk to you. And I'm thinking, oh, geez, what's about? She said, okay, uh, I've talked to Jimmy and David, and they need you to uh, do an interview f- with Ric Flair. They want you to see how you're going to do. And I went, what? <laughs> and I was so excited, Chris. I, I and Lois can tell you that I couldn't sleep that night. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I was like, I'm going to interview Ric Flair, man. And I'm like three years out of college and I'm going to interview the guy that I saw face Ricky Steamboat, Wahoo McDaniel and Cage and uh, and Indian strap freaking matches and the angle against Blackjack Mulligan. And I'm like marking out like a, I'm going freaking nuts. And so it's on the network where Gordon Soley is talking to uh, the promoters and saying that uh, Jim Crockett and Jim Crockett Promotions has won the rights to Starcade, Ric Flair against Harley Race, and they go to me and Ric Flair's house. And that's kind of how my career started. They started using me more and more after that. So that was 83. And I, I worked for the baseball team and did wrestling up until uh, about uh, up until 86. 85 is my last year in baseball. So when I was on TBS my first year, was doing baseball and wrestling at the same time for the Crockett family. So Jimmy Crockett was kind of the president of the NWA, if that's the proper term. The boss. What was David Crockett? David was uh, like he was for WCW. He he's kind of the guy that that made things work as far as behind the scenes. Uh, you know, we have a we have a guy now called Greg Warner uh, behind the scenes that makes a lot of things happen. Gotcha. As far as uh, putting people in place. Yeah. Uh, David was that guy, and then Jackie just ran a camera. Jackie Crockett was one of the cameramen. Well, I'll tell you this: I don't have any experiences with David or Jim, but Jackie Crockett gave me advice that I still adhere to the, to this day as a cameraman what advice for that. But, but well, it was actually good advice. Check this out. Oh, okay. So when I first came into WCW, you know, I had never really worked on TV before. I didn't know. I mean, obviously little low level Calgary or whatever they had in Japan, but Jackie said after a couple shows, he said, you know, he said, if you find me, I'll make you a star. If you're selling something or if you, if you got some fire or whatever, just find me. Mm-hmm. And I'll make you a star. And and it taught me to look for the camera. And you don't have to yeah. like, just look for the camera. And if you give the producer a shot, they'll find you and and, and take it. Yeah. Um, so I just thought that was uh, that's my biggest memory of anything to do with the Crockett's. But it was it was good advice. So what would be the peak then of kind of these Jim Crockett years, Dave? Because a lot of stuff happened behind the scenes and. There's stories that, that you've told many times that Tony was in the middle of them, but there's a lot of people that don't know just how much of a wrestling war there was at this point in time between Vince and, and Jim Crockett. Yeah, I would say the peak would be 85, 86, because 85 was when they got on TBS. Right. And they really, Dusty had really loaded them up with um, with great talent. And, um, you know, the talent, the talent was incredible. And then... Um, I think even into 87, it was strong. And then in 87, I think that, you know, and Tony was there and actually probably knows certain business aspects that I wouldn't know. But I think that the beginning of the end in its own weird way was when they bought Watts because it was, you know, between that and um, the syndicated network. And then Vince sabotaged the Starcade in 87, which was certainly a big blow. And I don't know that, you know, 88 was a struggle to recover because, they were expecting the first Starcade in 87 to do, you know, whatever, 100,000, 200,000 buys and millions and millions of dollars, which in those days, you know, a million dollars was an, an incredible amount of money. You know, today it doesn't sound like that much, but it really was. And they had all of these big contracts that they signed with wrestlers because um, they tried to keep them from going to Vince. You know, you had to pay comparably or the top guys were going to leave. That's just the nature of the business in that, at that point. So they signed the Road Warriors and Ric Flair and Dusty and Nikita Koloff and, and the top guys, Midnight Express. They signed them all to very good contracts. And to make the money from it, they were counting on a big pay-per-view return. And then Vince 
scheduled the Survivor Series on Thanksgiving night, which was when Starcade was scheduled, which was going to be Jim Crockett's first pay-per-view from Chicago. And so Crockett and the, the pay-per-view companies go, hey, this is great. We'll put your show on Thanksgiving afternoon. We'll put Vince's show on at night. We'll market them together. This is going to be like the greatest night, which is exactly, of course, what Vince didn't want. And I thought, you know, God, Thanksgiving, like Thanksgiving night is a great night for wrestling. Thanksgiving afternoon to me sounds like it sucks. But as it turned out, I remember Gary Juster calling me up because he was the promoter in Chicago. And I was going like, how are you going to sell tickets on Thanksgiving afternoon in Chicago? And then like weeks ahead of time, he goes, we're we're completely sold out. So it's like, okay, that's not a that's not an issue. But then Vince comes in with he went to. the cable companies and just said, you know, and he's coming off of WrestleMania three. This was the Hogan Andre, which was the giant success on pay-per-view. And he goes to the, to the uh, cable companies and go, if you air Jim Crockett promotion, Starcade, number one, you're not going to get survivor series, but number two, I will not let you get WrestleMania. So every company except for five, which were four in the Carolinas where they were, you know, Jim probably had connections or they thought, that we'll do bigger business for Jim's show than for Vince's show, because that's a local promotion. And one, which was San Jose, California, where I lived. And it was funny because I didn't even know the person, but I later found out. And he just goes, look, we made a commitment to Jim Crockett promotions for Starcade, and Vince isn't going to bully us. And, and we both were laughing like, yeah. And of, and of course, next year, Vince is not going to let you have wrestlemania like that's really going to happen right. and but but so many of these companies heard oh my god we're not going to get wrestlemania and you know they caved it was like 255 and five of them went with crockett and 250 went with vince mm. so crockett did basically nothing on pay-per-view when he was expecting to do millions and and that was that was a big that was a big freaking deal at the time yeah it was like you said dave i think you labeled it the sabotage of starcade and it it, it really was uh the, uh, as the old cliche goes, nailing the coffin for the for the company. How was that for you, though, Tony? And like, what was kind of the reactions when that's happening? Because just to once again paint this picture for people that might not know, back in these in the eighties, seventies, etc., it was a real kind of cutthroat, stab your you know opponent in the back type of business. So you guys yeah. see this coming? Did you expect it? Did you? What was- well, it, there were some bad things happening up and up through the, uh, that time. Dave mentioned the the uh, the sale to Watts that that really fractured the company. Hmm. Because uh, what, there was so much overhead, I guess, and that they had to assume uh, with a, a beautiful, uh, and I never went there, but what I understand, <laughs> a, a beautiful office in Dallas. Dusty decided to move to Dallas. Jimmy decided to move with him. And so now Jimmy and Dusty are in Dallas and David Crockett and Francis and the rest of us are in Charlotte. Hmm. And it really put a riff in the family. It really did. I, it, it uh, I know David and Francis were upset that Jimmy would move. Uh, but I guess Jimmy inherited this big office and he felt like he needed to do something with it. And uh, so it was, it was coming apart then it, it really was, you, you could see it in the front office. And then of course there was, I mean, there's so many things. There were the two private planes that they used. Uh, and, uh, I can remember we, uh, we flew one of the private planes to Brantford, Ontario to do a show. And it was a show that was promoted by Angelo Mosca and his partner and Jimmy and David got mad at, at Angelo Mosca and they took the whole crew of us and flew from Brantford, Ontario to New York city. We spent a night, at the Hemsley palace partied like <laughs> hell. Okay. Got back in the plane and flew us to Brantford. I didn't even go out. I don't know what they <laughs> flew me for. 
And Jimmy and uh, Jimmy and uh, Dusty got so mad at Angelo, they flew back home on the plane. The plane flew back to get us. Jeez. Okay. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. So this is what they were doing, and and they would go out west, like they would go out west to L.A. Uh, and run in L.A. and uh, San Francisco. San remember Francisco. that? Yeah, remember yeah. the old downtown, uh, the downtown uh, auditorium or arena in San Francisco that we San Francisco, San Francisco Civic is where they would run, or the or the Oakland Auditorium, right? And the, and then, they, but they would make they would make Vegas their hub. Hmm. They would work L.A. They would fly to Vegas at night. Then they would fly to wow. San Francisco and fly back to Vegas. Go to Albuquerque, fly back to Vegas. And yeah, so they were just pissing away money. I mean, they really were. So, yeah, I mean, I remember going to those shows with my friends and it's kind of like, you know, one of the things is, is you, you know, you would meet up with the wrestlers and it was just like, as soon as that show was over, they were in Vegas, Yeah, you know, you know, and, right. and, and I would go like, but you know, you're, you're in Seattle tomorrow. And it's like, well, then they're going to fly from Vegas to Seattle the next right. day. Yeah. And that's, that's what they would do. They would base in Vegas and yeah. party in Vegas the whole weekend and, fly in for the individual shows yeah so I, i'm not really blaming uh mismanaged the company was mismanaged <laughs> yeah. on, on many levels it really was jimmy never had a a, a and uh, conrad and i talked about this a lot you know we're doing our podcast right now and we're looking back at 1986 mm. which as dave said is, is one of the is probably one of the great years of jim crockett it's when they had the great american bash when rock and roll express and midnight express exploded uh and did those great things right before it's right before magnum ta had his wreck and he was a big star. Uh, we're going back and looking at that year. You see, like for instance, uh, Road Warrior Hawk comes out in one of the interviews and has what he calls a weasel slapper T-shirt, and he hands it to me. But did we sell weasel slapper T-shirts? No, we didn't. Vince <laughs> yeah. would have taken those things and sold those things, <laughs> right? Right. right. right, right, right. So yeah. We didn't. We really didn't have a marketing or a merchandising arm. We didn't. We were way behind on that. It was a it was a mom and, mom and pop operation, and I'm not trying to throw dirt on them because they they're so special to me. But I, I mean, I was obviously I I could see it happening. We were a mom and pop organization that just didn't have I don't know uh, the where for it all to uh, to market things. They they sh they showed figures. They showed toy figures of kids in the studio holding up the figures, and I'm thinking. Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> it's not ours because we're not selling them. <laughs> it's interesting because you're mentioning all the private jets and being hubbed out of Vegas and all these things. So they must have been making some big money somewhere. Was yeah. at that point in time in 86-ish, was NWA and Crockett Promotions bigger than, than WWE in the Carolinas? Were they bigger in Georgia? Where were they making these big houses to get this money that they obviously thought was going to be coming forever? Well, I mean, I mean, they were definitely bigger in the Carolinas and Virginia and Georgia and in certain markets, um, Baltimore ended mm, up, they, uh -huh. were, you know, they had a big yeah. fight over Baltimore, wow. which was a really interesting story because Vince pulled the power play. It's just like they're starting to draw and fall. You know, Vince thought they have all the major arenas in the country locked up and they did. They had most of them. So they would come like in San Francisco. They couldn't get the cap house. They couldn't get the Coliseum. So you go to San Francisco Civic, which is like a 6,000 seat building. And even if they sell it out, it's not like the cow palace. So um, in mm. most places, they were in secondary arenas other than in their home territory where they had the precedence and Vince had trouble getting in. So um, when it came to Baltimore, Gary Juster was able to find, you know, he was basically able to find a, a thing that it's a public building and get into the Baltimore arena. And they went into the Baltimore arena with um, Ric Flair and Jack Briscoe, I think was the first show, but month after month, they would go in there and they would outdraw Vince. It was close, but they were yeah. outdrawing Vince. And then 
Vince comes in, Ed Cohen was just like, here's the deal. You know, if you, um, if you book any more dates for them, we're pulling out. And they had a long history in Baltimore going back to whatever, since Vince Sr. started. And Baltimore goes, well, then pull out. So for a couple of years, Vince didn't run Baltimore because he made the threat and they took him up on it. In, in Philadelphia, Vince did draw better in Philadelphia, but Philadelphia was a super hot Crockett market. They were in a smaller building and they were doing seven to 10,000 people and they were rabid and they loved the blood because Vince wasn't right. giving them the blood. So, I mean, there were, you know, um, there were there were markets outside, um, you know, just the Carolinas where they were doing really, really well. I mean, Florida did pretty well most of the time. Um, but in 86, most places did well. I think yeah. the West Coast was the West Coast was hit and miss because they they would have if you came in with like a battle royal or the war games, they would sell out here. But then in the in between shows, it wouldn't be quite as strong because Vince came first and Vince, you know, Vince had Hulk Hogan. And I think that the, the key to the wrestling war in a lot of ways, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but Hulk Hogan is one of the reasons that can never be underplayed. That guy had so he was the, he was a difference maker in a yep. way that very few historically have ever been i worked with them until uh 89 and then when i went to vince in that one year in 89 i i i immediately realized what jimmy had been up against and yeah. uh, uh hmm. and hulk hogan and that machine that they had that was it i i had a chance to i was also when we when we when the crockets went branched out and we ran the forum in los angeles which was pretty pretty big deal the Nassau Coliseum. Jimmy used me as the ring announcer because he thought, well, they see you on TBS. He, it's a nice mm -hmm. little thing to have you as their ring announcer. So I saw right. some of those good crowds out West Tingley Coliseum in Albuquerque. We, we did pretty good business there. Uh, and I went with them everywhere and, and enjoyed my time. It was, it was a great run for me personally, but I mean, when I made the move, I could see that he just did not have the guns to compete here. What's interesting what you just said, Tony, you realize what Jimmy was up against. So what was the differences that he was up against between what NWA was doing in comparison to what Vince was doing? I think a lot of it is production. And and, and Dave, mm -hmm. I think you would agree if back in the day uh, when when Vince McMahon would go out with his superstar challenge and go to uh, TV stations and program directors and show his show compared to what, let's say, um, they had in Kansas City which is like a one camera shoot, his show looked better than anybody else's. His show looked like a TV show. And it, and then when I got there, I, they had edit suites. We didn't have an edit suite. We did everything live to tape and we had tape machines, which we would roll in spots. And then I go to, to Titan sports and we got edit suites and editors and edit one, edit two, edit three in a big control room. And it's like a real TV production. And we just had a Jimmy Crockett had a truck. And so I think what I think the one of the reasons Vince won the war, if we're if that's what we're talking about, which is uh, is that his show looked better. His pre, he put money in production, and uh, and his superstars and challenge they were slick shows compared to what Bob Geigel put out in Kansas City, compared right. to what we put out in the Carolinas, compared to Florida. It, it just looked better than all of them, and stations wanted that. Yeah, I mean the look and everything like that. And plus, here's the other one: is is they got a great jump in '85 with Mr. T and Cindy Lauper because everybody talked about wrestling. Because I mean, I remember I would do in in '85 would do like you know media interviews and stuff, and they really you know like Crockett Promotions was doing well, but the, the media didn't want to hear about Crockett Promotions. They didn't want to hear about Ric Flair if it wasn't right. on it could be because it's New York wrestling, it's Los Angeles wrestling because he got in L.A. first. 
And so in the big markets, now Chicago actually did very well for, for WCW, for Jim Crockett Promotions. That was the one market because of the Road Warriors. And, and Chicago is like a Philadelphia crowd. They just like violence. But, you know, New York is always the key when it comes to this stuff. And it was Vince McMahon's, you know, going into Madison Square Garden, selling out Madison Square Garden and Jim Crockett Promotions was not in Madison Square Garden. They were in the Greensboro Coliseum. And if you're a media person or you're a television person and you had Hulk Hogan and you had Cindy Lauper, who was so hot on, as a musical star, and Mr. T was one of the hottest things on television at the time. And so you have these and Piper became big because of them. And so the great wrestlers, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, the Road Warriors, they're big to wrestling fans, but they were not giant celebrities. Yeah, mainstream. mainstream. I mean, Ric Flair in some ways is a bigger celebrity now than he was, even though that's his real peak as a wrestler, um, as a drawing card in wrestling, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes matches. But as a celebrity, I think he's a bigger celebrity now because he can go on uh, ESPN Sports Center and they all know who he is. Mm-hmm. Back then, it's like every wrestling fan knew Ric Flair. But if you weren't a wrestling fan or didn't yeah. live in the Carolinas, you wouldn't know who Ric Flair was. Right. Yeah. Talk a bit about about Jimmy as far as being the boss, like in comparison to Vince, where Vince is very hands on and Vince is, is thinking and always basically the head booker, for lack of a better term. Jimmy, I don't think he really booked. Did he book? How, how much involved was he in everything in comparison to, to how involved Vince is? My memory. And of course, I was there just during the Dusty era. Uh, and uh, I know he had George Scott that did great business back in when I was a fan as, as the booker, but dusty handled everything. Uh, dusty had mm-hmm. free reign to do whatever he wanted to do. I'm sure he could fight in Jimmy, some of the things he wanted to do. And Jimmy obviously had to sign off on some of the bigger things. Jimmy, from my recollection did not have anything to do with booking at all. So what was he, was he more of a visionary Dave, as far as trying to expand or like what, what, what was his role as, as far as being the boss of, of the NWA? I mean, I think some of it, the, the, you know, originally it was just a territorial thing and then the territory started dropping. So then he started expanding, but it was, you know, it, it, it was one of those things where I think at that point in time, Jimmy and Bill Watts both kind of figured out that we can stay regional. We're going to lose all our top talent because they can make more money elsewhere, or we can try to go national and watch tried with the idea that I'm presenting, you know, better booking because Watts was a genius booker, but, but he didn't have the finances to compete with Vince or with Jim Crockett for that matter. So Watts was the first domino, you know, big domino to fall. And then Jim, you know, he came from a wealthy family. He had the money, but he didn't have, you know, he didn't have the advantages of, of New York and Boston and, and and places like this and television ad sales, which I think was also a big thing when when I think that when they bought Watts, one of the things that they were expecting was that now we can compete with Vince because we can sell TV ads because Vince was making some money on TV ads and it just didn't materialize, you know, that kind of revenue that they were expecting, you know, to pay for the Dallas office and things like that. So, um, but, you know, Jim, Jim, I mean, one of the things that, you know, he should be credited for was the, the first arcade, him and Dusty both. Well, I guess him because Dusty wasn't actually in until the end of that run. But, right. but you know, the, the idea of creation of mega shows, because that was before WrestleMania, where you would do a, a show in, in Greensboro. And, you know, before you would have this big show in Greensboro and you'd have a big match in Greensboro that you would advertise throughout the territory so people would come in or... Then with Starcade, it was like, we're going to book all our regular arenas on that night. And you just go to your local arena and watch Starcade right. on the closed circuit. So that was like the first 
that's the first show of its type. You know, the first big mega show of that of mm-hmm. that thing. And I guess what just the the expansion and also the the signing of guys to you know good contracts and the eye for talent, and um, you know just. I think that that's kind of like what him and it was him and Dusty just, you know, trying to grow the thing to because they had to compete because if they didn't compete, they were going to be like I and the rest of them and, and they were going to lose out in the end anyway. The first Starcade, which was 83, uh, and I was a part of that again, here I am a fan and I'm, I'm just like marking out in the backstage mm-hmm. area. I had started doing some interviews. I had I had known Flair. I'd gotten to know a lot of the guys. And I'd never met Dusty, but I knew who Dusty was because Dusty would come into the Mid-Atlantic region as an attraction. And he was always, you know, he was tremendous, had great timing, comedic timing. He was funny. He was great. And backstage at Starcade, Dusty was there. Now, I had been told, Dave, you may know this, that Starcade was Dusty's idea. And it was kind of like his, he was going to show Jimmy, this is how it should be done. And this is why Jimmy hired him. I don't know if Jimmy had hired him before that or not. But I know that Dusty was in the backstage area and was very much involved in everything that was going on. And if yeah. you even watch the the Starcade tape in typical Crockett Promotions fashion, Tom <laughs> Miller said, "Ladies and gentlemen, with us is the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes." And people goes crazy, and Dusty waves everybody, and they don't get him on camera. So oh. it's just like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, so that, but that was, but so Dusty was the inventor of Starcade, for what I understand. But that was also like a. Uh, a dress rehearsal for him being the booker, so to speak. And that's what we were always told. He seemed to have a, a, a series of events when you say typical Crockett Productions mm-hmm. moment. Was there a lot of kind of snafus and mistakes oh, yeah. and issues like that? Dave was talking about the, the celebrity aspect of it. And we did anything we could. If we knew a celebrity was around, it's like, how do we, how do we get them on camera? And I'll give you a perfect example. We go to the L.A. Forum. And we have a great crowd and sitting at ringside is Dennis Miller. And everybody's saying, if only we had a camera so we could show him on TV. <laughs> I was like, well, you're going to LA where all the stars are. Why not bring one? Okay. <laughs> and so the only thing we say, oh, Dennis Miller was at the show the other night. Well, really? Okay. So that, that's, that, that's one of the things that happened. We just, uh, uh some things we just didn't have the knack that Vince had. And, and of course, Vince had that, that big New York market too, which, which right. obviously put a lot of eyes on it. So, well, you know, cause once again, I mean, and I wasn't around, but Vince took the whole concept of, of wrestling and, and brought it, you know, to Broadway, so to speak, made it more of an entertainment spectacle and treated it like a big, you know, like a big comedy show or a big, like a big production. Yeah. There would be, there would be cameras at every show, no matter what. Sure. M- meanwhile, Jimmy is still kind of, it seems more of the old school promoter. And when you're fighting this new school mentality against the old school mentality, that's why I think ultimately why Vince won. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that, Dave? Because Vince was able to take it to this big spectacle rather than just this semblance of a sport. You know, there's there's a million reasons. And mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I mean, the thing that was always interesting to me, because that era was fascinating because I would go to a show and, and like a WWE show, I'd go to a WWE show and it was and people would leave and it's like, eh, you know, because because they really didn't do good house shows, but they would come back month after month to see Hulk Hogan or or Roddy Piper or whatever. And then with Crockett, they would come in and everybody go, oh, my God, like Ric Flair's match. We've never because because, you know, Vince had nothing like a Ric Flair match on on his on his house shows. Certainly not house shows, you know, maybe on a pay-per-view with mm-hmm. the right people, but never on a house show. I mean, Rick was one of those guys where. 
you know, the match that you see in the pay-per-view main event, Rick was doing that in every city, right. every night. Yeah. He was unbelievable. And and then they'd come back the next month and it'd be like, you know, you wouldn't necessarily draw as much. And I'd go like, God, you give people a great wrestling show. And what it was is the the Crockett audience to me, it was kind of like um in 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 our this is in our market, not necessarily in, in the Carolinas, they were a lot more mainstream. I went to the Carolina shows and it was different. But but when you would when they would come in, in the places, they were the the bloodthirsty fan. They were a lot of biker types and things like that. It was a real unique crowd. And the Vince crowd was more of a younger kids and family. And they right. were just they were they were there to see the ring entrances. I remember we would go and the music would play and the people yeah. would go crazy. And then the match would start and it would be death. You know, like no noise at all. And it's like they're not enjoying this match. And it's like, the kids don't even care. They're just there to see the stars. Yeah. And with Crockett, they were there to see the fights. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like the wrestling matches. They were there to see the fights and they wanted blood and they wanted violence. So it was, um, it was a different kind of clientele, but in the long run, you know, the, the Vince thing, um, you know, I could see it month after month that, that they were the ones that were, that were doing better. But I mean, the Crockett show itself, when you had like the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express and people like that, I mean, you really got, I mean, that's the one thing I got to say is, is you really got great live arena shows. Um, and it was probably even better in the regional days in some ways because um, they didn't travel as much and they were probably not, you know, more rested. But I mean, I remember like when we would watch the tapes from um, the arena tapes from say Greensboro or something and Tony would be at these shows. Mm -hmm. And I'd watch that that crowd, and it was just like it was not. It was different from Vince. It was a uh, uh, just the noise level. I mean, for oh, yeah. the noise level at those shows for the baby faces and the screaming and the live and die and everything, it was it was really something to see. When I first went to to Vince in '89, uh, I I had never heard about sweetening uh, a TV show, mm -hmm. and they had a reel of Hulk Hogan against somebody, and they used that to sweeten, and they showed oh. me how they did it, and I'm thinking. We never had to do that because, man, our crowds were crazy anyway. But, <laughs> but, but see, they were masters at that. They they knew how to make. They knew how to elevate Hulk Hogan. He was a superhero. He was more than just a wrestler. He was a superhero. And we would go to these. When I was with Vince, we'd go to these TV tapings, and we would do superstars one night, and we would do challenge the next night. We'd do like three weeks worth or something like that. Yeah. And then they put Hulk Hogan on the end. Hulk may come out during WrestleMania time to do an interview with Mean Gene. But Hulk was at the end, and you waited through all those tapings of all the squash matches to see Hulk Hogan come out mm -hmm. and the entrance, like Dave talked about. And the Crockett's had nothing like that. They they really didn't. The Crockett Promotions. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, Tony, because as as a fan at that time, that was my peak of fandom around this time. You guys are they're talking about eighty six to eighty nine. Yeah, and growing up in Winnipeg. We didn't have hardly any NWA. I'll actually I'll tell you the story when I first started seeing it. But even just reading the after mags and all that stuff, I didn't care about NWA because I was all about WWE and the and the showmanship and Macho Man and and Saturday Night's Main Event and you know Andre the Giant and Jake the Snake. And then when I'd see the after mags of Dusty, well, he just you know you see Dusty just in a magazine. It doesn't translate the same as Dusty as the guy. And then Dusty comes to WWE, and it's like now he's got yellow polka dots and it's kind of like this is the guy that the magazine said was so great mm. it didn't like the, the they just looked like old school wrestlers as vince would say whereas WWE, like you said tony looked like superheroes and rock stars and, right. and the entertainment aspect so for a 16 year old kid that was into rock and roll i was way more into wwf because of that and that alone it's marketing dave it's all it is uh right wouldn't you agree i mean they knew how to market their guys
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and Dusty, the one thing is, is they knew how to present a live product um, mm -hmm. and a live wrestling show, but uh, the live wrestling show is only part of it. And I think that that was one of those things with the old school guys is like, we'll beat them because in the long run, wrestling fans want wrestling and we're going to beat them by yeah. by presenting superior wrestling and it never works that way it's always about marketing and making stars you know you know you know there there are guys you know chris you know you've been in the ring with guys that are incredible workers and you know they're incredible but and, and some of them just aren't going to be stars you know it's just how it is and well, so, yeah. and some guys you you have to carry to get a match out of but they're superstars and and your job is is to make sure that they shine you know and that's they had, you know, Vince had the ability through his television and, you know, God, the NBC thing is a big, big part of it. You put guys sure. on NBC, you know, I mean, on, in, in the Saturday Night Live time slot once a month. And it's just like, that's, you know, it was huge. it's millions of people watching. Yeah. You know, it's a lot bigger than being on the UHF station at 430 in the afternoon on Saturday. And, you know, that's that was the advantage. That was the thing he was competing against. I mean, when you when we look back. I mean, one of the things when I look back and I go, you know, it really is amazing that for a couple of years there that it was a real fight, you know, until, you know, 88 mm. was when it kind of started go going one side. But it was a real fight the first couple of years, which, you know, is, is a big testament to how good the Crockett promotion product in the ring was. But re wrestling fans were changing. You know, I mean, the old school wrestling fans that didn't like what Vince did, Crockett was their company, but they were older. And the young kids who didn't know anything but WWF, and that's mm, what right. they saw on Saturday night's main event, and they saw Hulk Hogan, and they saw the action figures in their store, they would be like you, Chris, where it's just like, oh, who, who are these guys? They're not on WWF television. Right. And it didn't matter what they did in the ring at that point. You, you've already made your decision. I'll give you another uh, example of, of market savvy or lack thereof. We had, after uh, we started in April of 85 on TBS, and obviously, we became a, a very good show, very good wrestling show, like Dave talked about. So they decided to do what kind of was the forerunner of the Clash of the Champions, a show uh, at the beginning of February called Superstars on the Superstation. Right, the Omni Show. Yeah, the Omni Show. So what we did was we we got on TV. David Crock and I got on TV. He says, what is your dream match? We'd like to see what your dream match is. Here's the address. 1250 South Omni International, Atlanta, Uh to dream match, put it on a postcard and send it to us. Well, we knew what the matches were going to be anyway, but anyway, so we asked for these cards and letters and the cards and letters came to whom to me. Okay. And what did I do with them? I threw them away. So uh, <laughs> didn't even build a damn list that I we could get. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, know. I mean, there you go. We could, you could, we got all these cards. We got, now we got a mailing list. I mean, Let's it's like, out, right. It's yeah. like merchandise calendar, right? Exactly. No merchandise calendar. I mean, merchandise right. pamphlets to all these people. It's yeah. your most captive audience. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I did the same thing with the dream date, uh, with the rock and roll express <laughs> and the rock and roll express, super summer sizzler tour. I actually, I opened the letters and, we had thousands and thousands of them, and we picked like seven girls, and the rest of them went Choom! right into the trash. So, <laughs> so, so I, it, it was really still, it's an old cliche, a mom and pop, small time promotion trying to compete with a big, big oiled machine. It really was. And it, it just wasn't going to last. It really wasn't. Let's talk about what you mentioned a few times, but when, um, when Crockett bought the UWF, which was 
Bill Watts territory. Is that what happened, right? Crockett bought UWF? Yeah, yeah. Bill, Bill right. was going out of business. He was losing like $50,000 a week, which for Bill was an incredible amount of money. And it's, you know, oh, yeah. he was trying to expand. And the deal was, so the the big difference in wrestling then and now, it, you know, and it, it's the reason wrestling exists now and it's so lucrative now, is that now these TV stations will pay you millions and millions of dollars Right. To produce television. Then you had to buy your way to get on television. And Vince was actually the one who got that, which raised the stakes for all the regionals. Because before Vince comes, uh, the wrestling promoter would go to the local station in the market and he would offer them a tape and he'd give them the tape for free and he would keep some of the advertising. So he promote his local show. And sometimes they even would pay the station like 5% of the gate or 3% of the gate or whatever. So the station has an economic incentive to keep the show on in a good, in a good time slot. And so that's how local wrestling worked. And then Vince comes in and like our market was one of the first ones. We had the AWA at the time. Roy Shire's already been finished off. So we had AWA. Vince comes in in 84 and we have a traditional television time, whatever it was on channel two. And Vince comes in. And he offers the station $2,100 a week, you know, and they were making nothing and 5% of the Cow Palace and the Coliseum shows. So it's like, wow, this is a lot more than we're making with Vern. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Vince, Vince gets the TV time that people have been watching for years and years right away. And he had Hulk Hogan, which was obviously a, a huge thing as well, who had been Ver Vern's big so star and Bobby Heenan and people right. like that. So, so Vince would do this in, in he did in St. Louis, he did in San Francisco, he, he ended up doing it in Portland, Oregon, he did it all over the place. And so to keep up, the, all these TV directors and TV pro program directors would be going like, wrestling needs us, they should pay for us. And so, you know, even though the ratings are good, it's like, they decided like, televangelists and wrestling people, they got to pay for their TV time because without us, they're nothing. So Jim Crockett, Bill Watts, they had to start paying for TV time, even though the ratings were great. So um, Watts, you know, his, his idea was to syndicate all over the country. Jim Ross went to the Nappy Convention, went to all these places, bought TV time all over the country, couldn't afford it. They, they were going broke. He talks Jim Crockett, you know, like uh, if we, you know, I, I think it was kind of a swerve there. He goes like, you know, if you don't get it, Vince is going to get it. And Jim's like, well, we don't want Vince to get it. So he buys uh, Watts' company largely to get the TV network. But now he's got those giant TV bills every week from all these stations all over the country. And, um, you know, and that was that was what killed ECW. That's what killed a lot of people in that era. Um, if it was around, if it was the situation now where you got paid based on your ratings because TV stations were so are so desperate for, for anything that will draw. Today, all these companies actually probably would have made it at a certain level. They wouldn't beat Vince, but it would have been a completely different ballgame. And right. that's one of the reasons, you know, that's the advantage of AEW now is that it's in this time as opposed to if AEW was in that time, I don't know, it, it, they'd, they'd be, you know, the first years would be just brutal right. trying to, to build the company. Well, so, so what I was saying is that when, um, when, when Crockett bought Watts, we started getting UWF. This is very strange. Tony Candela would show UWF tapes in Winnipeg, mm -hmm. right? I don't know how he got them. I don't know why it was there. We're watching shows from Baton Rouge, Louisiana in freaking, you know, Winnipeg in minus 40 weather. How did we even get this? But that's for, for a couple months. And then suddenly NWA comes in. And then we're seeing, I remember Sting and, and you know, Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross. And I remember, I remember it was Sting and Rick Steiner yeah. were a tag team. And I thought, because Jim's accent, I thought it was Stein and Steiner. 
Not Sting. Stein and Steiner. Like, who's Stein? <laughs> That's a weird name, Stein and Steiner. My point is this led to them coming to Winnipeg for a house show. NWA came up to the Winnipeg Arena. And they probably only drew, I don't know, a thousand people to the mm-hmm. Winnipeg Arena. And I remember Sting was on the crowd on the card. And it was, you know, probably everybody that, that was there with no flair, but um I'm I would think of this. I wonder how much money would that have cost for them to try and do a show in Winnipeg where they're drawing, you know, a thousand people in the Winnipeg arena with nothing else around, you know? And I was wondering had if 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 NWA did that quite a bit. You mentioned Brantford. Ontario, Tony, were they trying to branch out in Canada or some of these other different states? And were those shows costing them a lot of money? That kind of was another reason why things started to yeah. fall apart. Yeah, and and of course it was. They were based. They had uh, guys based in Dallas and guys based in Charlotte. And again, the use of the private planes back in the day cost them a lot of money. They had their own pilots, so yeah, they were uh, they were obviously losing money uh, doing those doing those things. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it, it was, it was, a t- it was tough to try to compete. It really was. Now when, when, uh, and Dave, you probably can, uh, know more about this than I do. When Jimmy first bought, uh, the UWF, the idea was they were going to have two separate companies battling each other. Kind of like what, uh, everybody thought the WWF and WCW would do, uh, after 2001, the UWF would be its own entity with its champion. The NWA would be its own entity with its champion. And they would mm. battle, and then they would get together maybe for a Starcade to have like a Super Bowl. And I, I don't know what happened. I, I always thought it was egos that, again, it all just became the NWA. And the, the stars from the UWF were kind of like secondary to the NWA guys. And I remember going to a show in Kansas City where Dr. Death Steve Williams was on the card and a couple of UWF guys were on the card. But the main event was Dusty and Flair. So it was like they were elevating, they, they kept elevating NWA guys and not elevating the UWF guys. They created this thing called the Wrestling Network and uh, a lot of great plans. It just didn't work out. Yeah. I mean, I remember when the sale happened, that was like the big thing. It's like now we're going to have all these dream matches and we're right. going to feud the two companies. Right. And it, sound, it sounded great. It sure did. And then, and then it just, I, and I, I couldn't, I mean, it, you know, it's Dusty's booking. So it's like, you right. know, Whatever I just remember, I was friends with Eddie Gilbert, who was the the UWF Booker, and he was just, I mean, before I saw it happening, he actually called me once and just goes and kind of said, like, this is what's happening. We're we're going to be the second class guys, and we're going to be in the mid card, and they're going to be in the main event, right? And it's not going to be what you think. And I remember I went to Houston, Texas, for a show, which was a joint show with uh, Rick Flair and Barry Windham in the main event, and Eddie Gilbert was such a big fan of sting once because he was the one who turned sting babyface when he was a heel and he just was like you're not going to believe sting you're not going to believe sting he's going to be this great babyface and it's like okay okay so i went there and he had just turned and he wrestled and tony you'll remember rick hangman harris black bart black bart was his name at the time yeah Ricky and, and sting lost in houston to black bart and sting did get a, a really nice pop you know it was like okay it's a pretty big pop for a guy who's in the mid card you know you could see there's something there and then he loses to Black Bart. And it's just like, why, you know, why would he ever, ever, ever lose to Black Bart? I mean, it was just like, you know, under any circumstances. So mm-hmm. you just would, you know, and Sting ended up like sneaking through because he wasn't so associated and Dusty rebuilt him and everything. And he ended up being 
a big, big star. But that was kind of the thing. It was almost like, you know, you know, it was like in, in some ways was when the Mexican wrestlers first came to WCW and like the superstars from Mexico would come in and, and they would all be job guys. And some of them were so talented. Chris, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, all, every one of those guys. Right. And the fact that they were Mexican alone was was a reason that they weren't going to get a push, because I remember I remember when Vampiro got the push when they realized they thought he was Mexican. So he starts out jobbing everywhere. And then all of a sudden it's like, he isn't Mexican. And then all of a sudden they pushed him a little bit, which was just funny, you know, to mm-hmm. me that, right. that it was, it was like that, but um, with, with, yeah, with the Watts guys and they, they had real talent, but um, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the top Watts guys were like DiBiase and Duggan and they had, they had gone to Vince. I mean, right. DiBiase would have been a key guy. So you were left with guys, um, you know, Dr. Death, God rest his soul, tough guy and everything like that. But he did not have the charisma no. of a Dusty Rhodes or a Ric Flair. There was a big difference. Right. Right. And, and the reason Sting jobbed out to uh, to Black Bart was Black Bart worked for the NWA and Sting was UWF. And and, oh, right. and, and, and I think that I really think that there's been a lot written, a lot talked about. I work closely with him about Dusty's ego. And Dusty did have a big ego, and 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 Dusty uh, a lot of times used his ego to to book things, mm. for better or for worse. And I and I think Dusty's ego, or even Jimmy's, maybe that time, just thought, you know, we've got this product, but we're going to make it NWA because we're better. We're better. Yeah. You know, the same thing happened with with when Vince bought WCW, and yeah. the first thing they did, I remember the stories with Kevin Dunn. We can't let those guys beat right. our guys. Exactly. And it's like, <laughs> but if you don't, your feud's going to go to hell. You're done. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I saw that one coming. I wasn't in the business at all, but I remember when Vince is going to buy WCW, and uh, and I left the business, and they were going to feud against WWF. I went bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> that's not going to happen. They're not going to let that happen. It was so funny because when that was going down, Vince Vince called me and 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 it's so funny because you know Vince Vince told me everything basically that we can't do because of what happened with with Watts and Crockett. Mm-hmm. This is all the stuff we can't do. And then it's like as months go by, it's like every single thing he told me you can't do, they did. <laughs> yeah, it was the, the craziest thing. I'm watching this going like. He knows better because he to- he told me all these things. Like we have to make sure we have to at the beginning they have to get the advantage because they're the secondary groups. So we have to we have to put them on our level, and they have to win all the matches early on, and they have to get the Monday night time slot, which that fell through because of you know there's another story there. But um, but you know it, it was it was like Vince knew, yeah. but then I think that people were in his ear like Kevin Dunn of like we built this company, we can't make it look like this company, the secondary companies on our level, and then. Okay, then then the feud's dead. That is. Yeah, Steve Austin and Stephanie McMahon and Shane McMahon are the leaders of WCW. That, you know. <laughs> you know? Wow. Just as we start to wind down here, talking more uh, again about Jimmy Crockett, did you have a lot of interactions with him, Tony, and and, and business interactions, personal interactions back back in those heyday times? Yeah, we, we had a lot of interactions uh, because Jimmy was the boss. Mm. I, I tell the story, and the story is going to come out uh, in comic book form very soon of my mm. story. Oh, all right. Yeah, and uh, I tell the story of when I first met Jimmy Crockett, and I had been working for Francis, and again, here I am a big fan, just a baseball announcer, and they take me down to Jim Crockett Promotions office, and I'm thinking, whoa, man, this is a big deal. <laughs> okay. And I sat in Jimmy Crockett's office and he didn't smile. He didn't say, Hey, how you doing? He wasn't, wasn't overly friendly. He just said, uh, he said, we're going to take you in the back in the studio and you're going to do some interviews for us. And you're going to see things here that 
nobody should hear about, not even your wife. You keep it right here. Everything that you see, you keep it right here. I said, yes, sir. He said, I got your word on that. So, yes, sir. It was very intimidating. He really was. And he said, all right, I'm going to, uh, he said, uh, and he said, went, he said, Gene and Gene Anderson of oh, the Anderson brothers walk in and I'm really marking out now. Cause I love the Anderson brothers. He said, Gene, take him in the back and get him started. And so I walk in the back and they open these two wooden doors, boom. And my life completely changes from being a fan to seeing Ric Flair and Wahoo McDaniel <laughs> buddying up, you know, I mean, I mean, everybody's like, uh, uh, Ricky Steve and Jay Youngblood were the world tag team champions at that time. And they're talking to the Briscoes and it's like, holy shit, man. And so, and, and Jimmy periodically checked on me and he, he was, uh, he was very, he got to, he and I got to be very friendly, but he was, uh, he was very, very, uh, serious about the business all the time. We had, we brought, uh, in, I believe he, he was announcer in the AWA one time, Roger Kent. Do you remember him? Uh, Dave, yeah, okay. Chris, Chris, you might know him too if you watched it because he was I with the AWA. So. Okay. Yeah, that was past it, past my okay. time. So they brought Roger Kent in to do. Uh, they they thought let's bring Roger Kent in and uh, let's put him on TBS with me and David a little bit. And Roger just gave Roger and Bobby Heenan were friends. Okay, so that tells you a lot. So uh, Roger Kent would just coming off with these one line jokes, just like you know, it was entertaining, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and saying these, these crazy things. And Jimmy came out during a commercial break and reamed his ass, man, because Roger, Jimmy thought, and this is what Jimmy taught me. Jimmy thought that Roger was trying to be the center of attention by telling these, you know, these entertaining things. And that was not our job. Our job was to put the talent over, not to be, I'm Tony Schiavone or I'm David Crockett or I'm Roger Kent. It's just a vehicles to put the guys over. And Jimmy laid into him and I saw Jimmy lay into wrestlers too. He was not an over-friendly guy until you got to know him, until you got to be a part of his company. And because I became close to the family, Jimmy and I became very close. And then there was another side of Jimmy that I saw, and that was after the company was purchased and he was working in the front office for, for Turner Broadcasting. And Jimmy and I were a little bit on equal level. And we had to, we had a couple of dust-ups, a couple of uh, things that I did that he did not like. And uh, there, there was one time, uh, and this is about, uh, this is one of my favorite stories about Jimmy Crockett uh, J- and Jimmy backed down from, from no big wrestler. I mean, he didn't. And, uh, and I always admired that about him. Uh, Ole Anderson was a booker when I first came back and we had those miserable, those miserable booking committee meetings where it was me and Jr. and, uh, Ole, who was a booker, Jim Barnett, Jim Hurd and Jim Crockett. <laughs> oh man. I mean, those things would be all freaking day and, and you did, you didn't get anything accomplished really. And Jimmy was going on and on about how lousy the shows were on and on and on about how lousy the shows were. And Ole was at the head of the table and Ole took both hands and hit the wooden table in the conference room as hard as he could. Bam. Everybody like, and he said, God damn it, Jimmy. He said, name two things that you've ever booked. That's drawn money. No, you name one thing that's booked that's <laughs> ever drawn money. Go ahead. He said, Dusty Rhodes, George Scott, they're the ones that got ran the money. He said, you just took the money. And he jumped up and he ran out the room. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, J- and Jimmy said, Jimmy said, I, I, he said, I, I've never took bullshit from him. I'm not going to take it now. And Jimmy went back to Dallas. Just got up and left and got a plane and went back to Dallas. Hmm. And to further the story, I went to the bathroom and Ole was in the bathroom and Ole looked at me and said, how was that? Was that good? And I'm thinking, <laughs> Jesus Christ, he's working 
even in a production meeting, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but again, Jimmy took all that, just staring right at Ole did not back down at all from him. And he was, he was uh, very demanding. I knew what he wanted. I, I cut my teeth in the business, uh, because of, of his leadership. And, uh, I admired him for not backing down to all these big wrestlers. I mean, there's also, a, you know, there's also the story that because of the payoff of Starcade, I think our Starcade 85, maybe 86, that, uh, Billy Jack Haynes was pissed off about the payoff and threatened to kick Jimmy's ass. And Jimmy didn't back down from it at all. Mm. And Billy Jack got fired that day. So, mm. so, uh, he was pretty, pretty tough guy. Strong guy. Yeah. How about you, Dave? Any interactions with Jimmy? I didn't really know Jimmy at all. I think I met him, you know, like in, you know, real brief, but, but I can't say I knew him, but I mean, the one thing that I, I want to kind of get across is, and you know, like, and we sort of talked about this is that when you talk about like say 70, Six seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine. They really built a company, you know, up through the eighties, up through the TBS years. They built, you know, what was a local wrestling company, and and of all the local wrestling companies, I mean, they had the best talent in the world at the time, or in the country anyway. It, it, in, as far as full time in the world, I mean, when you talk about whether it was you know people's eye for talent, the willingness to allow you know a flare and a steamboat, and people like that to to move up, but you had the Mulligans and the Paul Jones and the names go on and on and on Wahoo. But I mean, it was like this small market, medium market territory. I mean, they had better talent than WWF and they had better talent than Vern, you know, who were big market, the big markets places. And they, re, you know, I mean, it, it was a testament to Jim as a promoter to build this company to where he ended up being the last man standing, but he was the you know, when, when it came down to the big fight, I mean, he was the one left in the fight. Everybody else, they could not compete. Jim could compete for several years. I mean, there were reasons, as we all talked about, why it didn't work out. But, um, I mean, it, Vince, it was a real fight in a lot of cities. It wasn't like it was someone's side squash match. But once, you know, the Starcade thing happened and, and you know, and, and like Tony said, all the differences that we can talk about now – but the fact is, is that they competed and they they did very, very well for the first couple of years on TBS. Yeah. I want to say something about Jimmy on a personal level, too. It was it was a great family atmosphere. It, it really was. Uh, and the, uh, two things. Uh, Jimmy uh, enabled me to buy my first house because he advanced me money. It's wow. like boogeyman mm -hmm. needs a draw. OK, so I got a draw from Jimmy advanced to be able to buy my first house. He did that out of the goodness of his heart. Uh, and so we were Lois and I were beginning a family at that time. And we felt very close to the Crockett family. When we moved to uh, our house, Francis, the Crockett family came over. Francis was the lead on this, came over and bought it, brought us dinner uh, when mm -hmm. we were moving in. And they were they were really, really good people to us because they were it was a good, tight family. And. Something, I don't know if people know this or not, but when I first started working in the Crockett office, they had a kitchen in the Crockett office. And that kitchen, they brought a guy in every day to cook lunch for the entire office because, as the word was, Mrs. Crockett, the mama, always made sure that her sons had a good lunch. So <laughs> they hired somebody to come in to feed everybody. So mm -hmm. it was a real good place to work. It really was. And it's, even though Jimmy was stoic, and uh, didn't have the sense of humor that David did, I thought, although we had fun with Jimmy at times, you know, once you go to the Hemsley Palace and have a lot of drinks, everybody's having fun. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was it was a good family place to work. And, and I really I really miss being with them. I really do. There's a story that uh, just is about to wrap up. I just remember this in 94. And you can help me with the logistics of this, Dave. 
did Jimmy open up a territory? Was he thinking of opening up a territory in, in Dallas area? So, so here's what happened. So Jimmy had, I think it was a, a five-year non-compete that would have ended at the end of 93. So he wanted to go back in the business because that was his business. So the first thing he did was he he was a fan of Heyman. I think he saw Heyman as like the next Dusty when it came to being creative. So he went with Heyman and they did a TV taping and, and um, you know, they had different visions. You know, I mean, you know, Jim's idea was the Greg Valentine and all the guys from the past. And Heyman was wanting to bring in everybody knew the Sabus and the public enemies and the people that he ended up going with, with ECW. And, um, but they did, did one taping and, and it, I guess they couldn't sell it. And then eventually Jim starts up in Dallas, which is where he's living and he's doing his other business. And it's like, he, he opened up the territory in Dallas trying to do, you know, the territorial wrestling that he did for years and years, but that day was over. And um, he did it for a while, but it was, it never took off because you, you couldn't do wrestling out of the Dallas Sportatorium every week in the 90s. Plus, you know, if you remember the 90s, that, that yeah. period from like 92 to 95, wrestling was really down. It came back with the Monday Night Wars, but from, you know, whatever it was, I'd say from 92 when Hogan's magic started to wane mm-hmm. and, and you know, the WCW was just doing terrible, just right. absolutely terrible. The whole business was was in, I call it the dark ages of the business. People will go like now, like, oh, the business has never been worse. And it's like, not even close. That 92, <laughs> to, 92 to 95 was real bad. Mm-hmm. And and he started during that period when, and he's starting in Dallas. And one of the other issues with Dallas was, is that Dallas was super hot in the 80s with the Von Erichs. But that whole area, the Von Erichs were such celebrities. And then they died one by one by one. And it became that like these all-American heroes were, were drug guys. And it, the way it was made out was not what it was. And the whole, the whole feeling of what wrestling was in Dallas was, was dead. Like people just wrestling mm-hmm. had a bad name because of the end of the Von Erich era after being so high during the Von Erich era. So it was a terrible place to go to start a company. And so, yeah, it didn't last. But I was uh, working in Japan with John Bradshaw in WAR. He was called Death Mask and he, th- he was living in Dallas. Yeah, so he, he was said- with them. He was with yeah, him. Yeah. He said, give me a tape, you know, the old tape and pictures. So I gave him a tape and he said, call this number. And I remember I was in Mexico and back then you're always a little bit nervous to call a promoter. And it was calling to call Jim Crockett. Right. And I called Jim Crockett at an ice cream shop. He was right. running an ice cream shop. Yeah. And very cordial, quick conversation. Basically, your tape is great, but I can't afford to fly anybody in and you know, no one really knows who you are. So it's, it's, you know, can't do anything with you type thing. But I just remember calling him at the ice cream shop Yeah, <laughs> that he owned. But, but, uh, like I said, it, 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 nice guy, very cool that he even took my call. Yeah. That is always worth something, you know, for a guy like him. But, um, I guess last question, what do you think the greatest show is in Jim Crockett promotions history? Um, because there's, there were so many classics. Is there one that stands out for you? Tony is, as your favorite, as the best, and, and same with you, Dave. Well, uh, for me, there's a couple of them. Uh, first of all, it's the first Starcade because I was still a big fan, and I was like backstage, and it was like <laughs> it was really a big deal for me. Uh, but but I really think Starcade '85 was 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 his biggest show, and it, it's because there's matches that you remember, especially the I Quit match with Tully and and Magnum TA, and then and Dusty and that angle, which was a terrible angle, but. Uh, 
about breaking his foot and, and switched mm. to the, the title and everything. And I, I think that was their greatest show. Starcade 86, where they used the, uh, the scaffold with the Road Warriors and Midnight Express, that was very good too. But I, again, 85, 86, like Dave said, you just pick out one of those big shows, especially Starcade, which was the big show. And I think that was that was the really the middle of the Crockett heyday, and that was their biggest their biggest show. Yeah, and as far as biggest goes, I mean, I remember going to Baltimore for the Crockett Cup the second night. So it was the championship night of the Crockett Cup in Baltimore, which I thought was a really electric night, especially the moment when Magnum walked out. I mean, that mm. was he had been in a car accident, and you know, basically it ended his career, and we thought he would never walk again. We didn't. I mean, I didn't even know if he would live. But we, we, you know, and then he walks down and I mean, that was among the biggest pops I've ever seen in wrestling and, and among the most emotional moments where people are crying and everything yeah. and watching that. So that moment to me of all the moments that I watched went to Jim Crockett, that was the one that I remember the most. But right. as far as um, you, even, you even came to Greenville, didn't you, for the early part of that tournament? Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. That, that was the next year. The next year. Okay. All right. Yeah, it was Greenville, Greenville and Greensboro. No, this was okay. in Baltimore. It was two nights. It was two nights in Baltimore. Okay. But I would say Starcade 83 and Starcade 85 and 86, the three shows you said, and also, and again, I didn't see this, but I watched all the television buildup for it because I would trade tapes and it was the Steamboat and Youngblood Slaughter Canoodle match at the Greensboro Coliseum. And I remember as a fan, it was so uh, you know, and this angle has been done like a thousand times, but this is the first time I ever saw it. And you have to understand Steamboat and Youngblood were this babyface team that had been together for five or six years. And they were just like synonymous to me with Crockett wrestling. You know, the 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 tag team title had almost equal in as, as, as the world title was. Right. And those guys as a, as a working team, they were incredible. They were one of the best babyface teams of all time that, that doesn't get the credit. Um, and then mm. they did that's this angle. And I, if you watch it now, it looks stiff and it's not as professional as you would see with, you know, an angle now, but, but when they, when they're in announced that if Steamboat and Youngblood don't win the titles from Slaughter and Canoodle, they could never team up again. And this was when <laughs> we actually believed in stipulation. Right. And I'm going like, oh my God, Steam, you know, the idea that Steamboat and Youngblood would never team up again to me was just like, you know, like for the last five years, these guys were the team. And, you know, it was like the biggest traffic jam ever in Greensboro. But I remember the build for that. I was like, that was something where I'm like, I'm like, God, I'm, I'm, I wish I was older and rich and I could go because I, <laughs> that was like a show I didn't want to miss. The, right. the hype of that was, was incredible. And then the Starcade, you know, the first Starcade, because it was such a loaded show and it was a first of its time and it's Ric Flair, you know, going for the title where you knew you just had that feeling Ric Flair was going to win the world title. And in those days, Winning the world title was still a gigantic thing. So, um, yeah, the Starcade, and it was the first show of its type. So, the Starcade 83 to me was huge. And then, like Tony said, 85, 86, um, those were, were real big. And then, um, but, but you know, I mean, if, if you look at, like, these old tapes of, like, Greensboro house shows or Charlotte house shows and just hear the electricity of the crowd, it was, it was in, you know, with, with Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. And Tony probably saw a million of those matches. And I only saw them later. Um, you know, when the like the 89 era and it's like, I'm not saying the 89 era wasn't even as, as this is, you know, was, was as good, but it was different. The, the 77, 78 era of Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat was these two young guys, as opposed to the two top guys. And they're just clawing over each other to be the top guy. And it was, it was just incredible wrestling. Yeah, mm. it was good stuff. And I remember in 78, I think it was 78, um, 
they had stripped uh, Ric Flair and Greg Valentine of the World Tag Team Championship, so they were going to oh, hold wow. a one-night tournament in Greensboro. So mm-hmm. a bunch of us got into the, a van uh, with a lot of beer and drove down. <laughs> and, and we got to see Baron Von Raschke and Ken Patera together. We got to see the Briscoes. They brought in all these teams, and this they put the belts on Steamboat and, and Paul Jones at that time. And it was just – I even have, I even pulled down the, the one of those old posters. Uh, and kept it uh, from that, but that was uh, those those house shows back then, with a lot of heat magic and game. fans going crazy was magical stuff, man. Any final thoughts on uh, Jim Jim Crockett, Tony? Yeah, uh, again, I it broke my heart that he passed away. I'm really glad I got to talk to him. Uh, he was very weak, and I told him how much his family meant to me, and they still do. Uh, on not only on the wrestling side, but on a baseball side, and obviously on the professional side. I owe the Crockett's everything, and um, I feel very fortunate that I was one of those uh, crazy fans who went to Greensboro and went to Roanoke and went to Richmond and went to all those uh, spot shows and spent my money that I was able to get some of that money back from him <laughs> that, that, that he that he paid me. So they they, they really know I'm, I'm being facetious. They they meant everything to me, and they still do. I'm still close to. I called each. I called Jackie. I called Francis. Obviously, I talked to David and told him how sorry I was, and um, I just wish uh, that I was able to go to memorial service. But I guess because of COVID, mm-hmm. we really don't have those much anymore. Yeah. So it was great, great time. Any final thoughts on the on the uh, uh, I guess on the legacy of Jim Crockett? Yeah, just um, I mean, it's it's funny because I it always comes down to talking about those last two years, and the thing is, is the the twelve years before those two years were tremendous i mean not everything was great you know it's not like but but a lot of it really was i mean when i would you know it was it was like you know the the other thing too is is like they were big with the wrestling magazines because um because of flair you know and, mm-hmm. and steamboat you know were photogenic guys that they like to put on the cover and they bled a lot and they loved the blood on the cover of the magazines mm-hmm. so i would see the stuff and then you know, a lot of times it, it would be like before you actually saw the product, you'd go like, ah, you know, I've never seen these guys. Are they really that good? And, you know, when I first started watching it and I saw Flair for the first time and Steamboat for the first time, it's like they were they were a different level of, of workers at that point than anyone I had ever seen. I mean, I'd seen charismatic guys like Dusty and Bruno San Martino and, and great workers like Stevens and Patterson. But they had an extra bit, you know, it was younger guys in the new generation. And, 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 you know, between, and not just them, but, but young blood, I mean, and, and then when the Briscoes came and, and all that, you really had for that time period, you really had just, you know, I mean, it, it was the best wrestling product in the United States for years, you know, and they gave a lot of guys breaks and a lot of guys, Greg Valentine was not a huge star till he got there. Ric Flair was an AWA, you know, opening match guy. Right. Steamboat was a guy that mm-hmm. nobody had ever pushed. Um, and on and on and on it goes, you know, with a Rod- Roddy Piper was, was big in California and Oregon, but this was a big step going to like a major promotion. And I, and I, I think Roddy Piper's best work ever was in the Carolinas. I know people will see the New York stuff and, and he was great and everything, but, but the, the, he was actually a better promo, I think. And that, that's the other thing, the promo work. And Tony knows this firsthand from, from both watching it on TV, but also being right in the middle you know these guys and they were unique characters like a jimmy valiant you know what i mean mm-hmm. who was just a unique character but it's like they had a a great lineup of guys and from a promo standpoint you know it's like some of the best promos you would ever see on the cuff 
30 of them in a day, you know, not like one every month. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that, that's what talked to people in the seats in those days. That's right. And, and that's, that was an art, that was an art form. And, uh, and if you watch the old TBS shows from 85, 86, you watch it for the promos. Mm, oh, that's God. what you watch it for. Yeah. Arn and Jim Cornette and, and wow. Steve Rhodes and Rick yeah. Flair. I mean, nobody did promos. And even to the, even to this day, you, you watch those people will put on YouTube, these promos of, of Rick Flair and Dusty and Jim Cornette and Arn. Yeah. And you look and go like, I know, I know why this stuff worked because it, right. it, was, it was just incredible. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a classic time in the business and, and a classic guy, a classic promoter. And thank you guys for uh, talking a little bit about him today. It was great. Thanks for having uh, me, uh, Dave. It's great to connect with you again. I've got this in my office, a uh, Mid-Atlantic Championship wow. Wrestling. Yeah, that's the old logo <laughs> that yeah, I grew yeah. up with, uh, a patch, and I keep it here in my office, and I think I'm going to frame it with – I do have <laughs> I do have in the attic about 35 ticket stubs from the Greensboro <laughs> Coliseum wow. that I'm going to put in a, in a thing with that. So it was – Jim Crockett was part of my fandom, and uh, I was certainly blessed to be to be part of my professional life too. Well, thank you guys. That All was right, a man. Blast. Was thank great. you. Thanks, Chris. Mm -hmm.